0: Okay, I, I want to follow on from some of the material that was presented but look at it perhaps in a rather different way from a, a more cognitive viewpoint. And you'll sort of see what I mean by that. Um, so we um, use this uh, call uh, as an exercise or a, to um, study whether teaching people different design methods affects their cognitive behavior. And the way to think of what cognitive or design cognition is is not the mechanics of what happens in your head but the way in which you think. And I'm hand-waving here literally but there's, there's more to it than that. But that's probably enough. And I'm going to be a bit more precise as we go along we did some experiments we did a, a fairly detailed analysis of a kind that's reasonably repeatable and we tested some hypotheses about what we think the world was like before we uh, knew, got some evidence for it. this kind of evidence so what we're interested in is what happens if you actually try and educate people the claim, of course, is that when you educate people, you're doing something. They're not just sitting around paying fees and um, being off the street, so to speak. Surprisingly enough, there's, although this is a huge field, there's very little interesting work being done. What we claim we do is we teach something about designing. And there's lots of things you could be teaching, but as I said, the thing we're interested in is if we teach people particular design methods, does it change anything in their thinking? Um, the ones we taught, and the, we're looking here at me- undergraduate mechanical engineering students, are brainstorming, which is a sort of... I'm not going to tell you what they are particularly, but you know, you know what brainstorming is. It's actually a structured method, morphological analysis which is another structuring method, and TRIZ, which is one of the very, very few methods that are taught at university that are actually used in practice. TRIZ is used surprisingly widely. Okay. How can we test what's going on? Whether there are changes, particularly in a repeatable way. And there's an area called protocol analysis, which uh, some of you know. It's a... um, which I'll tell you about a little bit. And it's, it's fairly good. It's not great, but it's fairly good in the sense that it gives you repeatable results, which is what we're looking for. And in protocol analysis, what we do is video people while they're designing as they verbalize, as they talk and as they gesture and draw, and we codify what they're doing. And that codification is uh, the part of the key. And then we can do lots of analyses over the coding. Uh, this method was developed a long time ago. Actually, Herb Simon was involved with it, uh, Erickson... The man, he wasn't the man that started it but Erickson and Simon wrote a very nice book uh, about 30 years ago and in it they said you should develop a coding scheme that's dependent on the task and that turns out to be a fundamentally flawed idea because if you develop a coding scheme that depends on the task you can't compare two tasks right there there's a problem you've lost all all information so the key to using this method with designers, different kinds of designers or the same person doing different things, the same kind of people doing the same thing or different things is to have some uniform basis to describe what they 're doing and that 's how we are able to make claims at the end of this and the method we 've developed is based on, is based on an ontology. An ontology is a nice Greek word which actually in ancient Greek philosophy meant something very different than it means today uh, today there 's a second meaning, and the way to think of an ontology is the framework for the knowledge in a field it 's not the unique knowledge itself it 's a meta view it 's an abstraction of it, and the one we 've developed is called the FBS Function, Behavior, Structure, Ontology, and the claim is, and this is not the place to argue this claim, is that there are some fundamental design issues that all designers get involved with. Architects, engineers, software, industrial, graphic, etc. All design starts with requirements of some kind, Otherwise, you're doing something else. Maybe you're playing around producing things for yourself. But those requirements are what the client has some thoughts about, what they might need. And they're often expressed only in terms of out, not the design itself, but something that the designer is going to do for them. And what the designer does is... In framing the problem or whatever term you want to use because every discipline uses different words they produce from those and their own experience what we might call functions which are expectations the teleology what you intend the thing to be about and I'm not going to go through how one develops this ontology except to suggest that there are six fundamental elements to it and you can read about it, which aren't dependent on the person, the field, or the task. They're about designing. And these are the six elements. And interestingly enough, the links between them map onto the processes, which you don't have to generate separately. So the design processes, and these are not necessarily the words you use in your particular domain. As I said, so we don't have a lot of the words you use, if you're in architecture or industrial design or software design, because there's often the words are reversed and time reverses them as well. Asimov's beautiful 1960s book on engineering design uses the word analysis in exactly the opposite way it's used in engineering today. So these are the labels for what is claimed to be the, uh, a set of fundamental processes which can be laid over all designing. Big claim, and you, know, you can argue it all over the place. So this is where we start. Okay, back to the story. We're going to teach people, or we do teach people, design methods. What sort of claims can we make about the educational value of what they do? So, here's some hypotheses when you talk to the teachers as to what they think is going on. Brainstorming, because it's this unstructured method, produces more structure. Structure doesn't mean uh, the, the outline of things uh, and the frame, framework. Structure here means the elements and the relationships that go to make up a design. So, in brainstorming, because you're meant to be throwing ideas out and no evaluation, you should get more structured design issues than, say, morphological analysis, which is a framework, a matrix of things where you put in lots of things that uh, include structure, but also behaviour, what you expect it to do. So, this this is a good hypothesis that people give us. Brainstorming, however, because there's not much evaluation expected, You would expect you would have a hypothesis that says there's less expected behavior. What what sort of behaviors do you want out of your design? These are very reasonable and uh, you'd think well-supported hypotheses. Again, because brainstorming says don't um, evaluate, you would expect to have a lot less analysis, say, than morphological analysis. What's interesting is. None of these hypotheses have been tested there 's a lot of experience but it hasn 't been tested now go to the where 's the research that supports this? Brainstorming has less description design process, say than morphological analysis because you 're just putting ideas down you 're not trying to elaborate anything and then Brainstorming focuses less on the problem and more on the solution, say, than TRIZ, since TRIZ is really concerned with coming up with some kind of way of of looking at the problem. So here's five hypotheses we distilled from a whole bunch of people who teach this in actually a number of different universities. So what we did is we set up an experiment where we had 20 students in teams of two, They all, as part of their course, had lectures on brainstorming, morphological analysis, and TRIS. And out of class, that it wasn't part of what they did, we did protocol studies of uh, this particular task, which is designed for disability support. But we gave them some high-end requirements, just some requirements. And they did these, class- these design sessions... Uh, after class, out of class. Um, This is sort of what it looks like as they do it. They're uh, standing in front of a whiteboard, talking to each other, which we record with um, really good microphones. I mean, the microphones cost a lot more than the video cameras. Um, We use the microphones that politicians use, so we don't lose a word we also tell them not to say bad things um, so this is how we do it we have this design issues coding scheme we video the designers we uh, transcribe what they say and their gestures we take their transcript, the transcription which is text segment it which means we break it up into smaller parts which we can attach a code to. And the code is one of those six elements. And this gives us a coded protocol that is a sequence of these design issues spread across the session. To give you some idea, a one-hour session will give you between 500 and 800 design issues that are raised by whoever's doing, whoever's involved. And now we can do analyses of those. So, the sort of analysis I want to present, you just have to think a little bit about, rather than just simple statistics. If we take a design issue, like um, structure. Structure is when the designer is talking about the theme being designed in terms of its elements and relationships. And we take all the segments, which are sequential in time, and every time one of those segments talks about structure, we just have an increment, a counter, That so if, it, if they've had nine so far the next one comes along, there'll be ten. So the first time they talk about it, there'll be one. The second time, which might be over here, there'll be two. So we just accumulate each of these design issues as it goes across the design session. So this is not something you you normally think about or see. And this, for example, is what it looks like for this group doing brainstorming. Running across here are the segments. They had 761 segments, or 761 design issues were raised while they were designing this, whatever it was. And this is the cumulative occurrence of each of the six design issues we're talking about. Already there's really intriguing things here, but I'm just going to mention them, but that's not what we're measuring (laughs) One of the intriguing things, contrary to theory, is that the first mention of something to do with the the result is very early. And this is very common, by the way. This business about planning, even architects do this. Sorry, even industrial designers do this. because The other thing that's absolutely uh, surprising is that there's, this one happens not to be as linear but there's a remarkable linearity there's a constant uh, invocation of the structured design issue right across design sessions at a near uniform rate for structure and behaviour from structure also from description which is when they're drawing things and um, expected behavior. The ones that occur at the beginning and then flatten out have to do with requirements, like after a while stop talking about the requirements, and function, which is their addition to requirements, which is what they want the thing to be about. So those two, that is function and expected behavior, have a different... cognitive behavior, because this represents cognitive effort. Where your mind is putting its effort. So this is what we're basing the answers to those hypotheses. Where your mind puts its effort. And here are the raw results of those slopes Right, the slope. Rep- the higher the slope, the more effort you're putting in, and then we can compare them. And this is these six design issues, and just looking in this case at brainstorming and morphological analysis. And now we're in a position to test some of those hypotheses. So, for example, the first hypothesis says there's more structured design issues in brainstorming than morphological analysis. So that's this thing here. And it turns out, statistically, there is... Notwithstanding what everyone says, when you measure it, and by the way, there's other measures that give you exactly this result. That's not true for these people. We've actually done it for lots of people, by the way. So things which we know from our experience... When you test them, maybe you're not so. Maybe you're thinking of something else. Okay. This is the entire result for design processes. And hypothesis... Something's happened here, but forget about it. Oh, that that is the entire result for design processes. But this is testing hypothesis 2, which said... Brainstorming is going to be less involved in how the thing works than what it is, because that's what brainstorming is about. And that's this one here. And lo and behold, statistically, that's a very robust hypothesis to make and is well supported by the evidence. The third hypothesis is that there's going to be less analysis, because. Um, there's less interest in brainstorming and analyzing things. But when you look at it, that's not so. That's not supported by the evidence. The evidence is that there is a difference and it's noticeable, but statistically it's not a significant difference. Humans are really, really bad at aggregating And if you want to get an understanding of this, humans are almost the worst place to go if you want to get a statistical understanding. That is group aggregating behaviors of people or individuals or anything. There's a beautiful book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And it's full of these beautiful experiments that show what humans are good at, what they're not good at, and how they work and live their lives anyway. So this turns out not to be supported by the evidence. Again, the claim is there's less documentation processes during brainstorming because you're trying to throw up ideas. Morphological analysis, because it's already a a matrix which you fill out, you would expect to see more. The evidence doesn't support that. Now, to test hypothesis 5, which has to do with putting more time on the problem than on the solution, we need a way of measuring that. And so this is something called the problem-solution index. Now, it's a very simple idea it takes all the design issues that have to do with constructing the problem which are requirements function and expected behavior and all the required and all the issues associated with the solution just structure and behavior from structure adds up the first adds up the second and divides one into the other if the value is one, it means there's equal amounts of cognitive effort. If it's bigger than one, more goes into the problem. And if it's less than one, more goes into the solution. And this is comparing tri- brain st- this is uh, TRIZ with brainstorming. And we can see that that hypothesis is well-supported. So what can we get out of this? That many of the things we know themselves are perhaps measuring something else, not measuring the thing we claim. Because when we try and test it, we discover that's not the case for some, and this for some others. When you, then what can you do with this? Because this is all interesting, and it certainly is, and it gives you some foundational knowledge. It means what we've started to do with this is not to go into education, and we do certainly feed that back, but to go to organizations that do very large-scale designing because they have a different kind of impact and, surprisingly enough, are much more interested in designing and changing what they do than small organizations. Because, anyway, why is another matter? So let me stop there, and um, I always have to tell that people give us money for this. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you John. Good night.